Ahoy mateys! This is WSAM Antonio Bay. Chris Gallagher here, beaming a signal across the sea. Thanks for joining me for another episode of The Carpenter Shop, a limited edition podcast presented by War Starts at Midnight. And I'm joined as always by my co-host, Jacob Graves. Once a month, we take a deep dive into director John Carpenter's colossal canon. Sometimes we discuss a film we already know and love. And other times we discover a gem for the very first time. Jake, what's on the docket today? Well, we've got a review of John Carpenter's scary story of a seaside settlement under a smoggy siege by sore-wheeling sailors at a city centennial. Yes, it's the 1980 film, The Fog. Plus, we've got some stuff you should definitely check out in really rad recommendations. But first... Hey, Jake. Hey, Chris. Enough of the uh, little radio announcer voices. Uh, you know what time it is? Uh, time to change the whole podcast over to radio announcer voices. <laughs> not not now. <laughs> not right now. Maybe in 2018 we can do this. But no, it's it, it, It's time for the John Carpenter Newswire. And, oh, as uh, always. As always. And we've only got one story here on the John Carpenter Newswire, uh, but it's one that I think we'll be covering for a while. Uh, it is – did you see this Deadline article – uh, with the screenwriter uh, Neil Cross. You know I did. Um, Deadline interviewed him about several things he was working on, uh, had worked on that that sort of thing. But uh, there there was a moment in the interview where he mentioned that he has completed a script for a reboot of Escape from New York. And this is something that has been uh, sort of speculated about for years now. Um, I think we even talked about it on on a past episode that Robert Rodriguez uh, was the last director to be attached. Apparently, um, this script that he has completed is for Rodriguez's reboot. But the really interesting thing here is uh, he mentioned that John Carpenter himself has seen the has seen the script and he approved of it. it it's hard to argue with it when he actually approves of it, but I, I I'm going to be excited to see it. I just, I mean, Snake Plissken's kind of iconic, and and I'm kind of married to Kurt Russell, so. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm curious. You are definitely more of a Rodriguez fan than I am. How do you feel... Uh, how how do you feel about this franchise getting rebooted, as opposed to some sequel to Escape from L.A.? Uh, As much as I'd, I'd like to see... Uh, what Snake Plissken's up to these days. I think I think a reboot could be good. I hope it's new stuff. I I hope it's not whatever happened in Leningrad. I don't want to know more about the backstory. Yeah, same. Well, and that's that's the thing that I hope happens here is the world of Snake Plissken is so open. Like I don't even want it to be necessarily Escape from New York. They probably make it Escape from New York just from a like the ability to attach the franchise to the previous mm-hmm. one. But I would be fine if it's escape from salt lake city or whatever <laughs> like i mean you've got you've got the entire united states in this in this weird post apocalyptic world where it's just hanging on you know like the the entities that governed um the the world as we know it uh are are tattered and and they're hanging on to authority but they really um, you know, there, it's, there, there's so many possibilities is what I'm trying to say. So I would be fine with it being escape from anywhere. Detroit, escape yeah. from Detroit that, and that's more of what it would be 
today anyway. New York was a wasteland. In the, I mean, have you seen Taxi Driver? That's not a set. <laughs> that was just that was just New York. We we will get to this uh, next episode when we discuss Escape from New York. But do you know where they shot most of Escape from New York? Uh, nowhere. St. Louis on location in St. Louis. <laughs> uh, one one time I saw a guy stop there and they just stole the rims from his car while he asked for directions. What? Uh, I mean, it was Chevy Chase and it was in vacation, but still, oh, right. I, I think okay. that's a true story. The, the the most important question, though, here we, we haven't talked about, who's going to be Snake Plissken? I have a definitive answer, and I, I'm i honestly going to be a little upset if it's not this person. Oh, okay. My answer is Wyatt Russell. Look. Hand uh, the baton to Kurt Russell. And not just nepotism, although that may play into it a little bit, but he's charming as hell. And I think he can pull it off. And I know, I know Snake Plissken is not the most charming Kurt Russell character, uh, but I would like to see him, him do it. Like he looks like him and he's a great actor. I really enjoy him on screen and everything I've seen him in. I'm with you, but do you think a studio head's going to make this without putting Chris Pratt in it? No, no, no. Chris Pratt. No, no. Okay. Here's the thing. Chris Pratt would be perfect <laughs> For a reboot of a Kurt Russell, John Carpenter movie, not this one, though. What, what, what one? Snake Plissken is too serious. You make him Jack Burton. You make him Jack Burton. That's 100% right. He would be perfect as Jack Burton. I'm not saying we need that, but if you're going to put him in a Kurt Russell role, it's Jack Burton. Look, if Chris Pratt holds, holds at this rate in, in 10 years, he could, he could be approaching the likability of... And and not exceeding, but uh, approaching like a Kurt Russell type genuine love from everybody who watches him on screen. People yeah. really, really like him. Now, I, I just I just want to ask this question because uh, I always ask this question: Donald Glover. <laughs> I mean, Don, I would, Donald Donald for Snake. I would watch it, but I, I we you know we go to the Donald well so much. Uh, I don't. I don't think Fine. so. I got another one, another another actor's son. What about Scott Eastwood? No. What? No. No? Why don't you just put the third uh the the the, the third uh Hemsworth brother in there? <laughs> uh well, a Hemsworth might end up All right, all right. Real answer though. Real, first person who came to my mind. Tom, Tom Hardy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, no. I'm I'm totally fine with actually Tom Hardy. I I would be totally fine with it not being a sequel. But with it being mm-hmm. a continuation, or not not being a reboot, but being a sequel continuation, sort of like he did with Mad Max. Just give mm-hmm. Tom Hardy all of those roles where you're continuing franchises. But, and that's the thing that, and maybe it's because it's a post-apocalyptic world, yada, yada. But that's a thing that I, I find so exciting about going back to Escape from New York, that world that, mm-hmm. that Pliskin comes from, is there are so many possibilities. You don't have to stay to a cookie-cutter map. You can you can explore whatever you want really with it. Yeah, I, I, I've I've got so much to to say about this, but I'm uh I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna save it. I'm gonna save a lot of what I want to say right now. We we can talk about this a lot. I mean, we're gonna talk Escape from New York and Escape from LA in the next episode. So hold hold those thoughts. Quick question: uh, Robert Rodriguez directing this. What do you think this looks like? I I, I hope it as much as I truly enjoy planet terror i hope it doesn't look like that i think it could i think he may draw upon that because that was definitely also a a post-apocalyptic world but a different post-apocalyptic world right i don't i don't know i'm I'm kind of excited because i do think robert rodriguez is a talented filmmaker even if i don't think he's 
a, a great, amazing top tier filmmaker. I think he's talented and he and he does have vision. You know, it's I've I've always pushed back against him. I don't think I've seen a movie from him that I genuinely like love through and through, with the exception of of uh, Sin City. Like, mm-hmm. there's always things that are a little rickety, but mm-hmm. he's not a terrible choice for taking a John Carpenter baton in in this situation. The thing that I do worry about is I worry that he might make it a little too goofy. And like I was saying with Chris Pratt, Snake Plissken is not the character to throw in like wry one-liners. He's a more like straightforward badass. So I hope it's not undermined in that way. I hear you. Let let me let me pit let me pitch Robert Rodriguez to you for this. Okay. The only time he's been good and you liked him is when he was working from a strong serious source material. That's true. And he's got one to guide him through it, and he just gets to direct and st- play within those bounds. And he should do a good. He should do a good job, just like he did with Sin City, which I think is an underappreciated masterpiece. Yeah, Sin City's not talked about nearly as much as uh, I would. I would expect it to be now. What over ten years later, fifteen or so? Yeah, I, right? I think people just maybe it hasn't had its chance to be reassessed yet. I think it's a very strong film. The the one thing that I am curious about with it being Rodriguez. Does he, and I think this is the wrong move to to make just from a like, then it probably dates the film, but does he try to create a parallel with the wall around New York City and the wall of our, that our president wants to put between US and Mexico? I think it's hard for him not to. I think it's going to be, that's going to be difficult. We'll see what, what the world looks like when he starts making this movie. Yeah. Uh, but but it, it goes to something else. I mean, is he going to set it in the year? I think, is that one 2001? No, that one's, uh, is it 97 is Escape from yeah. New York? And then it's 2001 maybe is LA or is it yeah, later it, than it, that? Is it going to be future past or is it going to be... Like when they reboot it, will it be future again? Like, are they going to set it in in twenty twenty nine or something right. like that? No, it, that that's a good point. I I don't know, but anyway, we we will see. One one final thing, we're not even going to get to this, but I I just want to, Jake, I want to give you plenty of time to think about it. In the next episode, we're going to play a little game where we think of the most unnecessary sequel to the Escape from New York franchise. So we got Escape from New York, we got Escape from L.A. Where Think about this. You don't have to say it now, but think about where would you want to see Snake Plissken escape from next? And it can be the worst possible answer or escape the Escape from Donald Glover. <laughs> escape from Donald Glover is what we we need to try to do when we come up with these dreamcasts <laughs> because he's a crutch. He would be great in everything, but he's also become a crutch for us. <sighs> Fine. I'll put my brain to work to think of something new to say next time. Escape from Hollywood video. Oh, God, dog it. <laughs> It's just one well, and I keep dropping the bucket in. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, what do you say we get to talking about the fog? Sounds like a plan. 100 years ago, on the 21st of April, out on the waters around Spivey Point, a small clipper ship drew toward land. Suddenly, out of the night, the fog rolled in moment they could see nothing not a foot ahead of them and then they saw a light my god it was a fire burning on the shore strong enough to penetrate the swirling mist they steered a course toward the light but it was a campfire 
like this one. The ship crashed against the rocks. The hull sheared in two. The mast snapped like a twig. And the wreckage sank with all the men aboard. And at the bottom of the sea, Navy Elizabeth Dane with her crew, their lungs filled with salt water, their eyes open and staring into the darkness. And above, as suddenly as it had come, the fog lifted, receded back across the ocean, and never came again. But it is told by the fishermen and their fathers and grandfathers that when the fog returns to Antonio Bay, the men at the bottom of the sea, out in the water by Spivey Point, will rise up and search for the campfire that led them to their dark and icy death. So, Jake, the fog was made in or released in 1980, a couple years after Halloween, with and it was made with more or less the same uh, creative team as Halloween. You've got Deborah Hill returning as producer and, and co-screenwriter, along with John Carpenter. You've got Tommy Lee Wallace returning as uh, production designer and film editor, and you know a bunch of a bunch of basically what had become. Uh, John Carpenter's regulars in his, you've got, you got Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, you've got, uh, Oh gosh, I can't think of his name right now, but the, the sheriff in, um, mm-hmm. in Halloween, uh, you got a whole bunch of it. Basically it's, it's more or less the same creative team and, and more beyond, beyond those folks even. And so the natural place to start with this would be, uh, so what do you think of this as the follow up to, uh, Halloween? But before we get there, uh, I, I would like to just point out this is sort of and I think we've mentioned this on the show before. This film is sort of the film that got us into deciding to do the carpenter shop to begin with. Uh, you you've mentioned in the past uh, there was there was a single tweet that led us down this road. Uh, do you want to read it to us? So Shane Scott Travis at Shane Scott Travis uh, tweeted uh, in case you missed it. Here's my respectful fanboy attempt to rank John Carpenter's filmography for taste cinema. And and he he made a, a a pretty good list of all the John Carpenter films. And Edgar Wright retweeted and said, "Nicely done." I would put The Fog in my top five, but otherwise, very much agree. And I thought, "Well, man, I haven't seen The Fog, and now I have, and now I can talk about it, and now I'm excited." Yeah. So this was a this is what we on the Mothership Podcast War Starts Midnight call a war crime. Neither of us had seen this film before we began the Carpenter Shop. Um, so let me go back to that question. This following up Halloween, another film that you had never seen until like a couple months ago. Uh, how do you like, how do you think this fits into the trajectory of John Carpenter's career? And then also being a war crime, uh, were you excited? Like, does it still qualify as a war crime for those who have not seen this film yet? That that's a lot of questions. First thing, first thing I want to say is we're finally on track where we've seen all the, um, 
all the releases in Carpenter's career up until this point, not counting the made-for-TV stuff. So Dark Correct. Star, Salton Precinct 13, Halloween, The Fog. I'm going to say, uh, especially if you say Dark Star is a student film, it's a very strong, steep uh, trajectory increasing on every film. I, I loved how this was made. I loved how it was shot. I loved everything about it as far as that, that goes. Um, and I, I thought it was a step up from Halloween. So start writing that hate mail now. I mean, I, I agree in like, I, I think there are things that are creaky about Halloween. I think Halloween works is super effective at mm-hmm. what it sets out to do. I agree. But it, it also feels like, uh, a very independent, cheaply made film at times. I mean, like, and, and we've talked about on the, uh, on the show before, like how much John Carpenter just squeezes every penny out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, you know, that was a Halloween was a very, very cheaply made film. And it was sort of what led to him getting not a ton of money, but a little bit more money to make the fog. Yeah. And, and, and I definitely see squeezing every dollar out of it. Uh, I, I could see, I don't know if you remember in film school, you'd like learn how to, use a new tool uh, when you first started learning to edit, like uh, dissolve or star wipe or put lightning on. And then you make a film where you use that. You got to use it. It's in your toolkit. This yeah, is like, yeah. it's like John Carpenter. You want to make a movie? We got a fog machine you can use. He's like, I can do this. <laughs> I, I can make, I can make this work. And, and it, but it does. It's like the, the fog is, is creepy. Yeah. So the, the, and the fog was the, he, he talks in the commentary, I think about, um, sort of what set him on this. He, I, I want to say he said he was in Scotland or he was somewhere in Europe and there was a big thick fog. And he thought, what if, what if the fog was the scary thing in a, in a horror film? And I'll tell you the first time that I watched this movie, uh, which was a couple months ago now, the next morning there was a thick fog outside in the backyard and I legitimately got terrified for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, 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 I was uh looking out the window a little bit. I was like, I don't, I don't really want the fog to come here. It, it's a, it's a legitimate villain. Yeah, I'll, I'll admit when one of the things that most intrigued me about the Edgar Wright tweet was I'd heard of the fog before, and I just saw like, oh, that's some low budget, crappy '80s horror where it's like, oh no, the fog's gonna kill us. And so I was like, what, what does he see in this? I didn't realize, you know, once I said, okay, it's John Carpenter, there's probably something there. And then I watch it, and I'm like, "Oh, damn! The fog's coming in. He gotta run." It's a pretty small little ghost story, really. Uh, but I appreciate that. Like, I appreciate, uh, you know, there's there's a pretty, uh, you know, the the production of of this film is kind of infamous in that they actually they made the film, they screened it to an audience, and they realized that they the film didn't work. And so they actually had to go back and reshoot a bunch of stuff. Um, I guess most of the, if you see just one single ghost pirate, uh, ghost leper pirate, whatever, uh, on screen, it's probably Tommy Lee Wallace wrapped up in like bandages and stuff. Hmm. Um, and it was probably reshot. Um, but they, they reshot it. They recut it. Uh, Carpenter even did an entire score throughout the entire score, rescored the entire film. So this is a movie that almost didn't happen and almost didn't work. And I really appreciate the fact that he was able to say, okay, we, we need to fix it and, and figured out how to economically do that. I mean, because still the budget for this was only estimated at like a million dollars. So we're still not talking about blockbuster budgets. 
uh, at this point. That's crazy that a million dollars gets you that much. I I, I know that's nineteen eighty dollars, and now I yeah. guess that's you know forty years ago or whatever it is, but. Yeah, but but still, and I think another part of the what forced them to do reshoots was the studio. Also, when they they saw it, they said it was a little too tame. Um, I think Deborah Hill mentioned that, uh, like Cronenberg's Scanners had just come out, and there was you know horror movies were going in the more eighties mm. gratuitous, like with Cronenberg body horror. But then you've also got slasher movies, which Halloween, you know, as we've discussed, sort of invented in, in what it became in the eighties, those starting to, to, to come in. And so they wanted something that was a little bit more visceral. And, and I, what I think is nice about this is it's still at its, at its core, it's still that, uh, you know, that ghost story that you would hear around a campfire, like, like you mm-hmm. have at the opening, like that is what everything sprouts from. And it still really has that, um, in its DNA. And when they do, you know, you've got some creepy, like you've got the, the worm faced, uh, pirate that you see going after Stevie Wayne on top of the lighthouse. And you've got some semi grosser things, but it's never like gratuitous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's tastefully done, and it's it's just enough to be creepy. You've also you know you've got the guy who who falls on Jamie Lee Curtis in the boat, and he's got the his eyes look like mouths, like he looks like he's got a mouth on each mm-hmm. eye. Um, you know, it's it's creepy, but it's not just it's not Eli Roth or something. It's not blood everywhere. It's not uh, you know it's tasteful. And and they they did a good job of, of showing you like the body in that scene, and you don't see it for too long. But then you get Napoleon Wilson in the next scene. Telling yeah. you about, uh, oh, he's been underwater for for a month. I've seen those kids drown, like, like, and <laughs> and and it starts getting creepy based on the description more than what you see, right? And it, and it right. starts building out in your mind. Oh yeah, remember he looked terrible. He like like you start pulling in details that you probably didn't even really see. Yeah. Um, so you you recognize Darwin jo- Justin in this, mm-hmm. or did you have to look it up? Uh, no, no, I definitely recognize. As soon as he came on screen, I was like, I know that guy. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's of right, course. Of course, your favorite from Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Oh yeah, uh, but but yeah, I mean they are, and and I think to I, I think what's great about watching this in relation to uh, Halloween is just how much John Carpenter matured as a filmmaker, and him he and uh, uh, Deborah Hill matured as screenwriters. Um, there were you know because there was a lot of dialogue in Halloween. Dialogue is maybe the worst part of that film. Mm-hmm for me. And, uh, there's, there's still sort of horror dialogue here, but it feels more realistic. Um, and also like the actors are all delivering and and you've still got some of the same, you know, you've still got Nancy Loomis who was in assault on precinct 13, who was in Halloween. Uh, she's here sort of as like the assistant to, um, Janet Lee, Jamie Lee Curtis's mother, making a you know a great little cameo here yeah yeah as sort of like the booster for for the town and the mayor um yeah i i like this movie is probably for me so far the second greatest discovery of the carpenter shop so so far like i i love it It, so so you're saying it's better than everything we saw except for in the in in the mouth of madness no, I said discovery. Well, that, that's what I mean of all the new stuff, which I guess that includes uh, Assault on Precinct Thirteen and Dark Star and and uh, Prince of Darkness. I guess that's the new discoveries for you, right? Right, right. I can I, I can buy that. I can buy that. 
Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's really, it's really solid and it's a delightful film. And I, it's one of those that I have, you know, I, I have a couple of friends who, uh, like I had a friend who had seen it before, before I did. And he was like, oh, yeah, I didn't really, didn't really care about it. I can see why, uh, people might approach it in, in a way where they're expecting one thing and they get something else because it feels a little more old school, but that's mm-hmm. what I really like about it. Like I was, I was sucked in from the ghost story around the campfire and it yep. was just like, I, I love the, the way that he takes his time, you know, like it's, we've basically got 20 minutes up front where it's spooky things, but nothing specific happening and not a whole lot of like exposition on why it's happening. It's Mm -hmm. just sort of like that, the really slow opening credits of just like things happening around town, the car alarms going off, the gas coming Mm -hmm. off the, uh, the, uh, the shaking in the, uh, in the convenience store. All of those little things are just great moments of showing the power of what is coming Mm -hmm. and, and no pun intended, setting some hooks in you. Mm -hmm. And then, where you would think, you know, when uh, Tom Atkins' character Nick Castle goes to the door at twelve fifty nine, and then hesitates and doesn't open until one o'clock, uh, you know, you you expect okay, this is where the slashing is going to begin, and it doesn't. It eases off, and then it goes into the story proper. Um, yeah, and, and I think that's a pretty like that's a pretty unique way to approach what could be formulaic. Um, and I really appreciate that. Yeah. Just watching. I was like, somebody got better at writing movies. I didn't know if it was their script or not. I hadn't looked at that, but man, I I love, I love that intro. Like, like you talked about just the witching hour and we learn it through the radio, uh, the radio broadcast and what, here's what I I think I appreciate the most about it. Here's what elevates it to a next level for me. Yeah. You could watch and be like, yeah, okay. That's just a horror movie or whatever. I love the scope. It's not the world's ending. It's mm-hmm. not we're in a house that's got spooky stuff going on and we can leave. Yeah. It's neither of those. It's a town, so it's big enough. It's happening to a bunch of people, but it's not the world. It's not the state. It's not the region. There's a good explanation for what's happening, and it feels legitimately threatening. It's killing people, and you know um, when you see the um, the Elizabeth Dane uh, piece of wood, say yeah, six yeah. six must die. You know, kind of the 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 scale of what you had. You don't know if it'll go past that. You don't know if it'll reach that. But but you know that there's a threat, and you know people are gonna die. Yeah, yeah. And it's well, and I I appreciate that it's only six. Like I mean, mm-hmm. especially like I feel like now six would be like, oh, okay, you're gonna lose six people in the first scene. Yeah. Um. You know, no, it's I, not I, this the scale. The scale is just the right size where it's threatening. But it's not, it's not, I guess to go back to the term I was using, it's not gratuitous. I, I feel like you could take this and and you could teach your, how how to make a classic, not not classic, but like a, a an 80s horror film around this. Because it's probably the best one in my mind. Just because it is exactly everything you want. It's, it, it's everything it is you a want. Great, it is a great bread and butter execution of... Just classic horror, classic suspense, um, which is which is exactly what you know we've grown to really love and appreciate and expect from John Carpenter. And it takes good writing and very good directing to make me scared of fog. 
Yeah, that's true. Just a fog that's got a flashlight or a, a, a light sh- shined through it, essentially. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. oh, no, that glowing fog, it's coming. It's going to get them. Well, and and they've even, you know, like, I think, I think the device with Stevie Wayne being at the lighthouse and on the radio, like, it gives you the character who's sort of the warning, you know, mm-hmm. like, oh, look out. Uh, but because they've put her in that position and given her the the job as the radio announcer, like it's one of those things where you always need a character to do something like that. But most of the time it feels telegraphed because it's like, well, we have to do it. So we'll make this weird device. This is the but perfect, she, like they came up with the perfect excuse. She's the lighthouse in the fog. Yeah. And, and putting her in the lighthouse. I love it. I think it's great. It's it's not so on the nose. It's it, it's never addressed. But when you look back at it thematically, she's the lighthouse. She's the thing beaming out, trying to trying to keep you safe from the fog. Yeah, but what I was what I was kind of getting at is like you in another movie, you'd be like, okay, well, why don't you just drive out, drive to wherever you want to be, mm-hmm. or you know, do. But uh, she she has to stay there because she's the only you know the power's gone out. She's the only person who can communicate to. She is basically. Uh, you know, she's communicating to everyone else in the town because she's the only connection they have to mm-hmm. what's going on. Uh, it's it's simple, but it's great. So what do you think of the uh, the exposition, I guess, the backstory for it with uh, Father Malone finding the, the old journal and a and hundred years ago and, and all that? Did, did you think that was a, enough of an explanation for why for what was going on? Did you think it was too much information? Did you? How do you feel about that? Well, let me let me begin by saying I love the way the uh, the journal is revealed to him. Mm-hmm. Where you've got well, first of all, we should we should talk about uh, John Carpenter's little cameo as Bennett Tramer just before this. Uh, did you catch this? <laughs> no, but that might be because John Carpenter in my mind is always 75 years old like he is now or how, however he is. He looks like that in 1970 in my mind. Sure, but he sounds he sounds exactly the same. He has just one scene. He's the guy who like in the church, he's cleaning up. Then he comes in and tries to get paid by uh, Father Malone and Father Malone's like, mm, come in a little later tomorrow. My 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 mind can't even picture him young. I I I remember him and logically in my head now I'm like, oh yeah, that's John Carr. It does not matter. He he is always old. <laughs> he will always be old. In my he was old when he was young. So uh yeah so that's that's right before Father Malone like the the journal is revealed to him. I love the way that the stone falls out of the wall hits the hits the mm-hmm. table. And then instead of getting like, oh, we're going to go, you know, generic suspense uh, music, the radio kicks on and you get this like big band music mm-hmm. that sort of undercuts a little bit. Like it's still, it feels a little creepy because the, the music's just kicked on, but it's also got this pep to it um, that feels so playful and so fun. And so like, that's like, it was unsettling. It was, it was like, it was, it was was unsettling, but it also like, he's not taking himself too seriously. Carpenter Mm -hmm. as like a, um, as a super, a super serious horror director either. Uh, and I, I really appreciate that. I I liked it because it was like a discord or whatever. It was, uh, it, it, it thematically didn't fit and it was that much more unsettling than just a, you know, a, some minor note played and or a big bass hit or something like that. It was just like, oh, what is going on? 
Yeah, the, the, the dissonance does have a – it makes you – it does. It makes you wonder because it's so far off from what you expect. And that's confidence from John Carpenter coming out, by the way. That's a, a, a lot of confidence from him to make that decision because it is a, it's a pivotal moment in the, in the movie. Yeah, it's where yeah. things getting – he's getting more confident as we watch these movies and even better at his craft, of which some oh, people absolutely. You know, love Halloween – this is him just elevating to another level and, and, and more of precursors of what to come. So to answer your question, I think the exposition is just about exactly the right dose that we need. It's not, it's not quite as spoon fed as like the middle part of Prince of Darkness, mm-hmm. uh, which, and you know, I appreciate that Prince of Darkness goes as long as it does without like giving you the full unload backstory. Um, the other thing is I think it's fitting for the type of story that this is with it being this sort of campfire ghost story. You need the, um, you need the history that leads to the haunting Mm -hmm. and, uh, it's just the right amount. It's not too much. They, he doesn't overdo it. He gives you little bitty pieces and, and you put it together and it's all you need. And, and it also, it gives you a history and it gives you a backstory and, no, I, I like it quite a bit. What well, about you? And, and I like that since those sailors really were wronged, you don't feel like they're just mindless monsters coming to kill people because they like killing people. They're looking for yeah. revenge, justified yeah. revenge. And it makes the town look bad, but also your heroes had nothing to do with it. So yeah. so it, it creates that little bit of moral ambiguity between these spirits coming back to get revenge and this this unjustly founded town. It, it's interesting without being like heavy handed or or too spoon fed to you. It but it's there and it does provide the depth that that makes the threat feel real and and not just like a standard horror movie where it's like ah oh, there used to be a ghost in the house and somebody died and got eaten by a ghost and now they had a ghost too. Mm-hmm. I don't know what movie that is, but I wouldn't watch. It. <laughs> I also appreciate the way that he uses ensemble here. Um, which he does, he seems mm-hmm. to do a lot in the, in these sorts of films, but you've got, you know, you've got the story of Stevie Wayne, but then you've also got, uh, Nick, Tom Adkins character and Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Elizabeth, uh, kind of driving around, um, town. They're maybe the most active, um, characters. Then you've got, you know, the thing going on with Janet Lee and, uh, Nancy Loomis. And so you've got all of these, these stories that they don't quite totally interweave they kind of come together uh at the very end Mm -hmm. but um i i think he he does a great job of giving you all of these characters and giving you just enough so that you do care about them and you're intrigued by uh kind of where they're going in their different directions and then and then bring them all together in the end where you've got the old the young the kids everyone sort of Mm -hmm. hold up in the uh in in the uh, church, and then you've got Stevie Wayne on top of the lighthouse, and it's just—it's a perfect—it's a perfect little formula executed super well. The old, the young, the hitchhikers, the drunk drivers—everyone's represented. Everyone, <laughs> the, the suicidal, remorseful priest. What, <laughs> what? What? I liked about the fog is it took so Dark Star. Probably the strongest part of that was the world building. It built a really nice world. Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Strongest part: the ensemble. Halloween, the threat, the suspense, the music, all mm-hmm. that. You take all those, you roll them together. He took everything he learned and he went and made The Fog, which just is really, really good. He, he's been exercising, he's been exercising, and now he, he goes out and does what probably is the first super strong movie 
just really, really strong. I think it's, and I think it's better than Halloween. Others would, would say it's Halloween, but super strong. I think, I don't know. It's, I, I'm going to have to have more revisits to this. I think I'm going to have to see if it gives me the same, uh, the same quality again, because, you know, like I've said, Halloween is one that I go back to again and again and mm-hmm. again, and it continues to work. Um, I, I don't doubt that the fog will, I just don't know yet. Um, but it's, you know, I, I think it's interesting that you say it's sort of a culmination of, of what he's done so far, because I also like that he's beginning to get a little cheeky with things. You know, he's been working with a lot of the same, uh, the same people and he started, I don't know if you looked at the actual character listing, uh, in, in the credits or on IMDb of this film, but let me just list off a few character names. Uh, Benji Tramer is the character that, uh, uh, John Carpenter plays. He's uncredited, but Benji Tramer is, I think, actually a real person. He was also his name was also used. Ben Tramer in Halloween is the uh, mm-hmm. the guy who uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character is going to go to prom with, but that doesn't actually happen. Mm-hmm. Um, then we've got Dan O'Bannon, <laughs> uh, who I think that's I think the uh, the old man on the uh, the beach. At okay. the I think he is Dan O'Bannon and Nick Castle played by Tom Atkins. So Nick Castle, he was the shape. He was the beach ball uh-huh. alien. Um, he went on to direct major pain as we have discussed. Um, there's, there's all sorts of little, uh, jo- John, are you he, just naming characters after people, you know? Yeah, no, there's, there's a character no. named Tom Wallace. Yeah. <laughs> and even, I think even the, Dane Elizabeth or Elizabeth Dane was named after like an ex-girlfriend of, uh, <laughs> of him. Like he's just, and, and I got to think he's, he's kind of playfully saying, like, I wonder if anyone will pay attention and notice that these names run throughout everything I've worked on so far. I really, I really like that. I mean, that's another element of like, he's not taking himself too seriously. He's still having fun with it. And I, I love that little detail. Like it just adds even a little bit more to, to the oeuvre of, of John Carpenter. And, and, and that is something I, I feel like he, he is a fun filmmaker. He does enjoy making these movies. And I think it comes out, especially in something like this, it's not oozing with jokes or anything like that, yeah. but you can tell, or at least I, I feel like they, they enjoyed making this. They felt like they were making something good. Uh, I don't know if I was just in the right mood when I saw this or something, but this was one that, that I, I really enjoyed and I'm going to recommend to other people, especially horror fans. And I feel like I was, how did I go this long without seeing this? Yeah. I, I felt the exact same way. It's uh it's one of those movies that just, it doesn't overstay its welcome. You know, it's, I think it's just shy of 90 minutes. So it's pretty quick and you know how much I love something that is concise. It ends on a perfect note. Like, that's that's the other thing is it it has sort of that that alien false ending thing and then it ends on just the the perfect sort of it's you don't get to see the conclusion but you the implied conclusion of Father Malone's fate um, finally getting that revenge the 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 leper pirates finally getting their revenge uh, it's it's just really it's fun it's light on its feet it's very competently made i think mm-hmm. to, and that's to like your point earlier about you think this is a better film than halloween i think it is a more competently made film than halloween i think it is a progression from halloween um i just i'm not ready yet to say that it is more effective because i think the suspense in halloween is so gosh darn effective um 
Look, but yeah, and, this and, is, and I, I'm with you. I, I am someone who you know watched them both for the first time in 2017. After yeah. one one viewing, I I liked the fog. I liked the fog a lot. I liked Halloween. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, no, I I'm in the same boat. I am kind of ashamed that it took me this long to see it, uh, but I'm so so glad that I did. Well, well, don't steer that that boat in into the fog. Uh, what do you think of the? Speaking of which, what do you think of the the the, the first scene where the the pirate the I guess they're I called them pirates at first because I didn't quite know what they were, but the the ghosts show up and take down the three people on the uh, I forget the name of the, the the fishing boat. I I think it's I think it's super effective. I I love the restraint, um in in the way that you know he makes it creepy and he makes it. Uh, it's a little bit also of that, you know, you can feel the sense of dread and warning, but it, um, I, I don't know. I, I think the thing that I really appreciate about the way Carpenter does horror is he doesn't take any cheap shots. Mm-hmm. Um, he does it in a way that feels genuine and mm-hmm. that feels earned. And there's, you know, it's not just, it's not just like, oh, we're going to give you a, a shock moment. Uh, we're going to give you a jump scare. Mm-hmm. Everything feels like it organically comes from the place that it should come from. And I, I feel like that's how, you know, we've we've gone quite a while without getting, without yet getting a kill and getting the sort of horror that you expect from, from a film like this. And when he does give it to us, it's not too much. It's enough to leave us wanting to see more, wanting. Like, it's almost by restraining it, the audience... I feel, or at least for me, I, I felt like I wanted it to get into full swing. Like there was almost anxiety because it wasn't in full, in full Uh, killer swing. On that boat, the thing I liked, um, the, the last guy who, who, uh, gets off in the boat. I I don't know that, I don't know what his name was, but he's like fooling with the instruments and he's Uh like, oh, none of them have power. I love that we weren't experiencing it as he did, where we got a jump scare. Oh my God, they're here! We watched the the sailor with the the sword or whatever slowly come toward. We couldn't clearly see him, but we yeah. knew he was getting it. We knew he was yeah. done for. And the suspense there was: is he going to notice and turn around and fight and run and get away? But it was not a jump scare. It earned it, and it it played with what we saw and what we expected, and the character and all that. It was it was a little expert moment coming out, and a little just a one shot, but an expert little moment. Yeah, it's it's the difference between suspense and terror, and just just horror that is brutally forcing itself down your throat. All right, Jake, so let's score the score. And how do we do that? Oh, we score the score out of a score. And what is a score, Jake? Uh, A score, as Abraham Lincoln knows, is 20. That's correct. Okay, so where do you come out on this? Can I I get a little bit of negativity here? Can we come off as not complete John Carpenter fanboys? You you can get a little bit. I'm not going to go give it a 20. Um, I couldn't hum it for you right now. Um, I don't, I'm not going to say it was an iconic score, but it is it's a it's a very good John Carpenter score does exactly what it's supposed to do. It's present, it makes it creepy, it sounds like a scary movie. It's in all the right spots. I'm going to give it let's see. I'm going to give it a 17 out of 20. Wow. I, I, wow. I, That's I love high. his Here's the thing. 
I have I've never seen it before, so it's just brand new John Carpenter music, which is just fantastic to me. Um, so it's very strong. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. Not everything has to be Benson, Arizona, where I'm singing it for the next ten years of my life. <laughs> it sometimes it just works really, really well. It it still allows the movie to be out in front. It if I hired him to do a score for the movie and he brought that back, I'd be like, that's, that's perfect. That's what you want for a horror movie. Yeah, uh, it's not, it's not a perfect score it's not halloween it but it it does what it's i'm saying 17 out of 20 that's where i land on it okay what about you the the score i i really like this score i do think it you can definitely tell that this is coming directly after halloween because especially the main theme that you get a few times throughout and that plays on loop on the uh scream factory blu-ray it has some halloween undertones i think the the biggest thing is in Halloween you have this like kind of drum machine ticking thing going on and in and in the fog score you've got something similar but although it's not the drum machine sound but mm-hmm. it's this persistent sort of like ta 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 and so it it feels maybe i mean it doesn't it's not that it feels derivative but it feels like it's of a piece of a time in his uh in his career as you know a filmmaker scoring films um but i i'm with you like i think it's extremely effective without getting in the way there's a piece that comes in towards the end that honestly feels a little different that's it's not quite so synthy it's a little bit uh darker and a little bit heavier that feels and honestly feels a little more modern than some of his stuff um that i absolutely love Mm-hmm. And it's it's one of those where it's truly score. It is it's not melody that's trying to overtake and trying to do too much. It's just uh, more more traditional score of guiding you along. And I I think that's what he does well with the score here. Um, so I'm I I'm not as high on it as you are. I'm going to come out with a solid fifteen on this one. That that's still a high number. That's still a seven and a half. On, no, a, on a tin scale, yeah. No, I, I think, uh, I this is this is a soundtrack that I could see myself putting on in the background while working. I'm not gonna because I like to not be scared all the time. Well, maybe that's motivation to get get whatever it is done. Maybe it's motivation to live by a lighthouse. Otherwise, you're gonna get <laughs> hooks in you. And actually, Jake, with that note, I think it's time that we uh, get a little violent and mm-hmm. we get to the Clash of the Carpenter. This is where on every episode of the Carpenter Shop. We pit a John Carpenter badass against another John Carpenter badass. The way this works is each episode we have a reigning champion that goes up against the biggest badass from the newest film, from the film that we, we are discussing. So we began with R.J. McCready uh, because we began with things. So R.J. McCready obviously is the victor coming out of there. And then he had a pretty steady reign. He He plowed through... Uh, badasses from Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness and Dark Star, but he was finally defeated by The Shape in Halloween, which was a bit of a probably our mo- most controversial matchup we've had so far. Uh, but The Shape's reign was short lived because he was swiftly defeated by Christine in Christine. Uh, and then Christine was ultimately crushed by basically the whole posse from Assault on Precinct 13 uh, with some some little caveats that, that Jake uh, 
was. I, I mean, Christine can be crushed, but that doesn't necessarily mean Christine is gone. Dun dun dun, Christine. So just you know, be aware. Christine might come around. Uh, you know, in the eleventh hour. But the current last man standing, or or last people standing, is the crew from Assault on Precinct Thirteen. The whole Precinct Thirteen group. That is correct. They crushed Christine into a little cube. So, so who who is that? Who is that crew against? That's the real question here, because it is an ensemble. It's a little bit more difficult to answer. Um, you could maybe go with Nick Castle, uh, mm-hmm. Tom Atkins' character. You could go with the fog itself. You could go with the saber wielding lepers. Uh, who come out of the fog? Uh, I'm gonna go with that one. Okay, do we go with all of them as a clan? Is it is this a is this a gang fight? Yeah, yeah. I I, I think it's not just one saber wielding sailor. I think that they they come as a group. They 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 invade together in the church at the end. I think that's who you're up against. Okay, so it is Blake and his band of leper zombie pirates. We mm-hmm. will call them. And Blake, I will add, actually played by uh, Rob Botin, who went on to do the amazing effects in in the thing. At this ah. point, he was still just sort of a, a young kid, hadn't done the thing yet. That's a, a few years out. Wow. Um, but yeah, he he did some of the the may. I think he did the worm face guy uh, on on top of the uh, hmm. the lighthouse and and whatnot. But so it's it's uh, Blake, glowing eyes, sword, and all of his dudes against the crew from Assault on Precinct Thirteen. You got a take on this? You got a first take on this? I've I've got I've got a first take. Okay. And my first take is uh this is not just a siege of a building. This is a siege of an entire town. So that's mm-hmm. that's my first my first uh hey, little Hey, look, analysis. look, that's not much different from what the uh Precinct 13 crew fought against. But uh these are also the undead. <sighs> and they they will not stop until they have their victims, but but have, have they have they put a, a blood curse or whatever it was on the, a cholo? Yeah, have they declared cholo? I don't on, think they've declared cholo, but uh, you know when they need six dead, they're going to get six dead. Ooh, I th- I'm, that's I'm that's gonna, a good point. This is the this is the the uh, the badass most capable of killing a group of people. I, I yeah. think we may have even started out with six altogether in, in precinct thirteen. I think I'm gonna and and the other thing is that. They weren't really defeated in the fog. Yeah, they they weren't even taken out in their own movie. No, they met their quota and then they went away. And then they got and then and then they came back for revenge. We, we don't know that they went away. They were there at the very end. That's true. That's true. So yeah, I I'm going with Blake and his band of his band of leper pirate guys. You know, it, it's really hard to pick a. a Cop, a criminal, a, a, a secretary over over sword wielding lepers. Yeah, you know, I I feel bad because we we were on a pretty good run for a while where you know we had R.J. McCready week after week running it. I feel like we're turning over uh, every episode now. Mm-hmm. But the other question that I I am asking myself is who do I want to see Snake Plissken go up against? <laughs> That is a very good question, and I want to see him fight some leper wielding, some leper wielding swords, some sword wielding lepers. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's a landslide here. We're, we're going to give it to the lepers. Are we in agreement? Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't even think we need to pose this one to Twitter. I mean, you're, you're, you're free to weigh in on it, but I, I think it's got, it's got to, it's got to be the fog. Yeah, I, I agree. 
uh, which brings us to the Carpenter canon, Jake. And I don't think this one's going to be a surprise no. uh, to, to anyone here. Uh, the Carpenter canon, each time on the Carpenter shop, we classify the film. Uh, is it a Carpenter classic, which is uh, the, the highest praise bestowed upon a film by John Carpenter? Is it a deep dive, a film that is certainly worth checking out, um, but maybe has, you know, you love it warts and all? Or is it just for Johnny's mommy, a film that is so bad that it perhaps should not have been released to the public? (laughs) And, uh, you know, you will see it because you love John Carpenter, but you also feel bad for him after having watched it. They, they, They can't all be winners. They can't all be winners. Um, although we have not had a just for Johnny's mommy yet. Uh, I think Hunter was close on Prince of Darkness. Well, Hunter was wrong on Prince of Darkness, but, um, I mean, I don't, I don't need to leave anybody in suspense. I'm ashamed I hadn't seen this movie earlier. I thoroughly enjoyed it and I'm going to recommend it to people who, who aren't necessarily, uh, declared fans of John Carpenter. Yeah, no, I think this would be a really good entry point too. Yeah. This, this, this is a Carpenter classic. We're in agreement. I, I don't even know. I like, I honestly don't have much more to say because I think we, we've really said it all in, in the review, but yeah, it's just a, it's a delightfully fun film. Yeah. I I mean, uh, it, it, I don't want to just close, close the journal, the, the hundred year old journal on the movie. But uh, but that that's what I got to say about it. G- go see it. If you haven't seen it, you need to see it. And and when you do sit down to see it, or you're just driving around picking up hitchhikers, uh, Chris, you want to tell us what beer you should be cracking open? I do. So I I have a confession to make. This is a beer that I've already recommended on the Warstar of Midnight podcast uh, before. And actually, when I thought, yeah, that's that's not too bad. And then I looked it up, and it was on the episode that we reran uh, back in like August. But I still don't care because I cannot think of a more perfect beer to pair with this than Puff by Six Point Brewery. Uh, this is a double IPA uh, coming in at 9.8% ABV and a whopping 108 IBU, so an extremely bitter beer. Um, the reason it is perfect for this is because uh, the Puff is actually – Six Point makes – uh, a series of IPAs that I I really enjoy. They've got the resin, which is their standard double IPA. They've got the high res, which is their triple IPA, which is wonderful. Uh, the puff is actually the resin, the double IPA, but in an unfiltered variant. So instead of filtering the beer towards the end of, of the process, they leave. Uh, there's there's basically like when you pour it, it it pours this this cloudy, murky uh, uh, sort of it's it's foggy. You see, Jake, I can't, I can't uh, not recommend the great foggy beer. And there were, I was trying to think, okay, what are some other unfiltered beers that, but this is, this is my choice because, uh, puff is as wonderfully delightful as the fog and they just belong together. Gosh, darn it. Does, does this one really sink its hooks into you? It really sinks its hooks into you. <laughs> um, though, the one thing I will say is if you, if you do, uh, go out and search for it, Check the date on it. Um, this is a beer that, because of the way that it's made, it is best consumed fairly fresh. Uh, so also don't leave it at the back of your fridge for too long. Uh, consume it while it's new. That's when it is going to be uh, at, at its best. It it can get just a little bit a little bit skunky um, if if you leave it in the fridge too long. But with that caveat, a perfect pairing with the fog, uh, which is a 
just a perfectly delightful film. I don't know how many times I'm going to, I'm going to say this. And, and, but, but I, I do want to throw a disclaimer out there. If, if you're hitchhiking as you are want to do and someone picks you up and they're drinking this beer while driving, you should probably get out the car. Nothing bad good's going to happen. No. Yeah. No, bad idea. The Fog is currently streaming on Shudder. Available in a limited edition steelbook from Scream Factory, or maybe even available at your local public library. Pick it up by any means necessary. And if you have something to say about the film, hit up our assistant, Henry Swanson, at Express at carpentercast.com, and he'll relay the message to us. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around for really rad recommendations coming up next. Could make my case by the way you chased just as soon as I left the matinee. Let the hush of night out the windows eye. You were floating in the bog on my street. But don't you Jake, it is time for really rad recommendations once again, and I I can actually see what you're recommending here. I'm looking at your notes. I have no idea where this is going, so just <laughs> hit me with it, please. Well, so this is a this is a seaside story, right? And so I, mm-hmm. I I like the atmosphere. There's a lighthouse. You're out by the ocean. You know, you're kind of on the shore. All that stuff going on. And I tried to think of some. You know, what movie is like that? I mean, Jaws, but I'm not going to recommend Jaws. So I wanted to go in a different direction. One of these movies is funny. <laughs> the other one is funny games. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my, my seaside recommendations for today is you should either go and watch What About Bob? <laughs> starring Bill Murray, directed by Frank Oz. That Frank Oz. Um which is, I don't know what, uh, a, a mid, uh, probably what, 94, I think? I, I was going to say 95, but yeah, it's somewhere in there. Yeah, somewhere in that range. Uh, Bill Murray, um, Richard Dreyfus. It, it is a really, really funny, underrated Bill Murray movie that I never hear anybody talk about, but uh, is really funny. The other one is a, an underrated horror movie that I never hear anybody talk about, Funny Games by Michael Haneke, and in particular, I'm talking about the U.S. remake of Funny Games, which is the one I saw with uh, Naomi Watts. Yep. Yeah. And Tim Roth and uh, Michael Pitt. Yeah, yeah, really, really good. These movies are on the opposite end of whatever continuum uh, you want to rank movies on. Right. Or, or, uh, but I think they're both 
really strong. Uh, if you had to pick one to watch today, what would what would you watch, Chris? And you've seen both of these. I mean, I'm I'm probably gonna go. I'm probably gonna go funny games every time. Every um, time. Yeah, I and we've I I think I recommended this a while back. Uh, it, it is a movie that I have lost friends uh, <laughs> temporarily over, but I'm okay with that. Uh, I, I will also point out, well, you know, I haven't seen What About Bob in a while. I'd like to revisit that. Uh, yeah. I was wrong. What About Bob 1991? Wow. that's my. I, I remember seeing it when I'm pretty sure I had to be four or five when I saw it. Maybe, maybe we had it on tape. Maybe we wore that tape out because I've seen it a lot. We quote it all the time. Ba- baby steps across the room. Baby steps. Baby steps. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I watched it a lot as a kid, but I probably haven't seen it in 20 years either. Well, if you need to break the tie, Funny Games is streaming on Netflix right now. Okay. Um, what about Bob currently available to rent from, you know, many different places? And But it, it comes around every now and then to, to Netflix or Amazon or something like that as well. So Right, and also, also available at Hollywood Video. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was definitely available at Hollywood Video. I don't know if Funny Games made the rack, but I know what about Bob did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris, what, what do you have to recommend? Well, I... Actually, my recommendation isn't terribly far from you in that it has two titles, uh, but it is one entity. Okay. And it is, it's a comic book that I've been reading lately. Uh, it is called Big Trouble in Little China slash Escape from New York. All right. You had me at every single part of that. Right. So basically what this I, – I love this concept. Basically what this concept is is – well, let me just read you a panel from from the book because it – essentially explains everything if you know these if you know both of these properties so the panel goes like this we've gotten word that a chinese american sorcerer from 1987 named david lopan has opened an interdimensional portal and summoned forth a host of evil alternative universe snake pliskins so if you're not sold by that you can leave if if you are if you're at minute 50 of our review of the fog and you're not sold by that big trouble in Little China Escape from New York crossover comic. What what are you doing? Just please let us know. Yeah, so basically <laughs> what happens is it takes place in the world of Escape from New York in 2001. And through magic, someone summons uh, Jack Burden from his world into Snake Plissken's 2001 world. So he's driving his truck across like Texas or something and accidentally like falls into a portal and comes out on the other side and it's sort of mad maxi like he's he's now in the texas or tex oklahoma territory or something like that driving across and there's ravengers and um and then it just you know escalates from that it's actually like this would be an amazing like saturday morning cartoon because you've got you've got the dynamic of he so he comes he comes through and the guy was trying to get Snake Plissken he accidentally got Jack Burden but thinks he's Snake Plissken because he looks just like him <laughs> and then they eventually come together and Plissken doesn't want to be a part of this team and Jack Burden is all Jack Burdeny and he's not really great at anything but he he you know lucks his way into um, succeeding every time they come up against 
uh, up against folks. So it's it's really the world is great to play in. You know, like we were talking about at the top of the show, the world of Escape from New York is is just wonderful. There's so many possibilities. Uh, but then the dynamic between Pliskin and Burden is really good. Like they would make it, and that's why like I would watch this shit Saturday morning cartoon because they they make sort of the perfect like buddy cop team of Pliskin is the straight guy who doesn't want like he doesn't even want to have a partner and then Burden is like the foil for him who's just goofy and you know ultimately ends up succeeding even though he should fail because he's really inept but you know he's just so charming and has so much luck and and his his luck factors into sort of this this first arc it's it's just so much fun and I've audibly laughed out loud a number of times Highly recommend. I was going to try to hold off until we get to Escape from New York, but I can't. It's really good. You should read it. Chris, have you have, have you examined the idea that maybe you're actually dead and your brain is just coming up with the most appealing thing in the world for you? It's a big trouble little in China Escape from New York crossover with two Kurt Russells, and also it's set in Texas, Oklahoma, and you can reach into the page, take on me style, and pull out double IPAs. Well, and, you know, <laughs> I, I found it because I was looking for... <laughs> You know, I read back around Halloween time, I read the first volume of Tales from Halloween Night, and I was like, I bet there's some some good uh, Snake Plissken stuff out there, uh, comic books. You know, I was looking for something like that, and I found that there's there are Escape from New York comic books, and there's there are Big Trouble in Little China comic books, but they seem to more or less follow the basic story. Like, reviews I was reading was like, ah, it doesn't bring much to it. And then I found this, and I was like, well, that's worth, like, even if it's just okay like that's at least worth diving into the world and it's it's so much fun uh it just like 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 the fog i can't recommend this enough it's just a delight it's wonderful i'm i'm just full full of joy and effervescence on this episode i guess i can't be critical about anything it it, it sounds a lot better than the nancy loomis crossover graphic novel i'm reading right now <laughs> are there three of her <laughs> yes so far uh, when we see more movies maybe more will show up <laughs> i don't know if she's in Starman or not i don't think so <laughs> all right well then, then that's a wrap for another episode of the carpenter shop you can find show notes archives and a complete list of where to watch each film in the series at carpentercast.com and check out our Mothership podcast at warsartsatmidnight.com. You can say hello to us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod. If you enjoy the show, tell your friends, tell your casual acquaintances, tell that cute person at the gym who's always listening to podcasts, or rate and subscribe to The Carpenter Shop on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the cult of Carpenter, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand... If you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and send our assistant, Henry Swanson, a great big heaping pile of anonymous internet vitriol at PorkchopExpress at CarpenterCast.com. Or, if you're a narcissist who simply loves the sound of your own voice, leave us a voicemail and we just might play it on a future episode. Ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The Carpenter Shop theme song was produced by Philip K. Dickey and Dragon in 3. Find them at DragonIn3.com. And shout out to Sports for the featured music on this week's show. Find more at sportsbandok.com. We'll be back next month with a review of John Carpenter's A number one post-apocalyptic action picture, Escape from New York, as well as its slightly less cherished sequel, Escape from L.A. Pick up Escape from New York in a limited edition steelbook Blu-ray from Scream Factory and catch Escape from L.A. streaming on Amazon Prime, Hulu, or Epics. Yes, ma'am. And don't forget, you can catch us in another fortnight on War Starts at Midnight for our look back at the year of 2017 in cinema. 
Thanks for listening, folks. Chris, you're the only person I know who can make yes ma'am sound like screw you. Yes, ma'am.